<clears throat> this is a Romy cast. Never get tired of being Beatles. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Tell me what goes in the gun. Very excited. We just have a little less guitar in the earphone. Oh, that's all way. It's Mr. John finally got just after that when we do both of the Paul. A series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore with some great Canadian music people and peel off the layers of the glass onion as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Uh, I will mention that this is indeed the award-winning Walrus Was Paul podcast. Uh, You see, this podcast was voted winner outstanding music series at the 2022 Canadian Podcast Award. Pretty happy about that. Uh, This is part two of my chat with country singer, songwriter, and player Raquel Cole. Today we'll be talking about side two of the Beatles' 1969 global bestseller. Uh, In fact, uh, the biggest selling of all of their original studio albums. I'm talking about Abbey Road. If you missed part one, where we talk about side one, you can find it wherever you found this episode. I suggest you go back and listen to part one and then come back and listen to part two. But hey, suit yourself, whatever you want to do. As this is being recorded, Raquel's latest single is All to Yourself. A great tune, catchy video. Uh, you can see the video at her website or on YouTube. Her first Canadian country single release, Think About You, a couple of years back, was named one of Sirius XM Country's biggest songs of 2021. So if you're a country music fan, you may have already heard of Raquel. Uh, you can find out exactly what she is up to by visiting her website, Raquel She is also on TikTok, Facebook, Insta, Twitter, and YouTube. She's out there, folks. (laughs) The website for this podcast is romicast.com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we have done so far. This is the 19th episode of Series 3. You can find all of the episodes from Series 1 and Series 2 at the website or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Raquel, nice to see you. Welcome back. Thanks for asking me. So before we get into side two of Abbey Road, uh, there's a quote from you that that I want to read out, uh, which is just lovely. It's a music is healing. You hear it your whole life and seeing it in real life is so meaningful. So you're speaking, I think, with that quote in the context of a listener. What about in the context of a creator? Uh, Is there a song that you've created that has been particularly meaningful or maybe even healing for you, the process of creating it? I have two of my songs that come to mind. One is uh, Personal Truth. Um, 
that song was very much me coming out of my shell and saying, I'm ready to sing about things that are true to me. And, uh, and I'm not going to let anybody, you know, stop me because people really like to give you their opinions and tell you how, how might you be successful and what you need to do and how you need to sound and what you need to write about. And that can feel very like the walls are closing in sometimes. And so that song for me was really, yeah, a really freeing experience. And I hope I'd like to think that I've continued on that journey. Um, And then find the one was another song that I wrote that felt, I guess. So I wrote it as a single person talking about when you find your person and what that's going to feel like and how you're going to forget, you know, the past. And, and that was cool because that song has been at people's weddings. People have played it, you know, walking down the aisle, their first dance. And I've just had this real amazing feeling of connection to people with that song. And that to me is an incredible feeling as well. to get to create music and then share it with people and that part is also I think healing because it's it's connection and I think people are looking for connection like loneliness is the opposite of connection and music helps us do that connect it's 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 I can't imagine not being an artist uh the way you are what it will be like to have somebody say yeah i I played that song at my wedding uh, or I, I heard that song at a, at a celebration of life or whatever. I, I, that, that, that must just resonate so deeply. It does because music is the very thing, like I said in my quote, that healed me. So if I have the chance to create something that moves someone else, what an incredible feeling, you know, that because that's, that's what we all got into music is because it someone made us feel a certain way. And so we felt like, well, I want to do that. You know, I want to make that feeling. I want to create that feeling um, so someone else can experience it and, you know, feel it. Hey, well, let's flip it over to side two. And uh, the one thing, of course, uh, on vinyl, you have to get up, you have to flip it over. Uh, the one thing I'll say about a CD is you have... I want you, she's so heavy, just so loud and intense, and it ends, and then there's a pause, and then you have this beautiful 12-string guitar chime in with Here Comes the Sun.
Oh, this is such a great song. It's been in so many movies. It it literally feels like sunshine. Like the lyrics, you know, and it it goes so great after, you know, I want you so she's so heavy because it's it's like the sun starts coming up and we're like, "Oh yeah, right. The Beatles. They're pretty happy, you know, a lot of their music is very feel good and um here comes the sun is a great great uh, first track to the second side just a beautiful song uh it's uh, harrison's second song on abbey road and uh, famously the story is it was written on an acoustic guitar in the garden of eric clapton's house in surrey uh the song expressed harrison's relief at being away from the tensions within the beatles at the time the troubles with apple their company that they were setting up and the various business and legal stuff which at the time was overshadowing the group's creativity here's what george Harrison said in the anthology, Here Comes the Sun was written at a time when Apple was getting like school, where we had to go and be businessmen. Sign this and sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. And by the time spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day, I decided I was going to sag off Apple, and I went over to Eric Clapton's house. The relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants was wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars, and I wrote, here comes the sun. Wow. Can I ever connect to that idea and thought of just being free to, to play and sing what, what comes to mind um, and what you're feeling in that moment? Uh, I think that's a beautiful representation of that. It's uh, uh, McCartney uh, plays his uh, Rickenbacker bass on it. Uh, you got Ringo on drums and then Harrison playing uh, his J200 acoustic guitar on three, his guide vocals on eight. And it just, uh, I, I just love it. It's one of my favorite Beatles songs of all time. Just as, as you pointed out, it just, especially coming after I Want You, She's So Heavy, it's so light. It is so light. Yeah. I love the, that song. Ooh, I'm just like, now I got to listen to it. <laughs> Get off this. <laughs> so we go to cut two on uh, side two. This was the final song to be recorded for the Abbey Road album, and it was John Lennon's Because. Uh, and of course, it is famous for those layered, beautiful Beatles distinctive three part vocal harmonies. I mean, I love singing harmonies. I sing a lot of harmonies with um, a band that I'm in called The Woods, as well as, you know, in my own music uh, in the studio. But they're all singing different parts that weave in and out of each other and they don't miss a beat. It's one thing to copy a harmony pattern like that. And then it's another thing to actually come up with it yourself and then remember it. You know, they. I don't think they were punching uh and if people don't know what that means it's in the studio there's a little section that you didn't get quite right you can punch it and you can fix that little section without having to redo the entire take i really don't think that's what they were doing i think 
they went in and they sang all those parts in tune and it's it's ridiculous actually that song if you really sit down and listen to it that they pulled that off well here's here's george martin who did the vocal worked with them tirelessly on that session you're talking about here is his memory of it he says uh he starts off by saying there was nothing for ringo to do because we'd not got drums in the song but in fact there was something for him to do because it was so slow and meticulous the question of ensemble between the guitar and the harpsichord that is each note had to be exactly together and i'm not the world's greatest player in time and i would make more mistakes than john did so we had ringo beating a hi-hat all the time to us on the headphones so we had a regular beat we didn't have drum machines in those days so ringo was our drum machine and that was the way we did the track having got the track the three boys sang together in harmony the whole song and then we overlaid another three voices and another three voices so we had nine part harmony all the way through and that was because that makes sense that makes sense that Ringo was was holding down the fort because that would be incredibly difficult as a singer to do without without a metronome which I don't think they were really using those in the studio back then either well the, the three part harmonies in this song they're beautiful uh, and you referenced it the, the three part harmony in the band that you play with The Woods uh, with Dan O'Rourke and Leland Rooney uh, also beautiful uh, I, I listened to Worlds on Fire uh, the bit where it goes love me hold me and kiss me like you know me love me hold me will be hotter than the world out The opening ooze of If You Really Love Me. So my question is, how did you discover that your voices melted together so beautifully? Was it just happenstance or were you doing karaoke one night at a party? Like, how did it happen? (laughs) I wish we had a great karaoke story. It was a little bit of happenstance. You know, I was a big fan of what they were doing. Music, or Nashville's a very you know who you know, music town. We're all watching each other like who's going to do what next, you know? And, and you know, I'm just like the Beatles were doing back in the day stealing, not stealing, but hearing other bands recording and other artists and be like, ooh, I like that, you know? And that's what, we, we still do that in whatever music town you're in today. So, Leland and Dan were kind of searching for a third member of their group and I was doing my own thing, but we're in the same circle and how a year later I was like, you know, we were all like, dang, our voices are so good together and just the way that our vibratos work and, and where our voice sits in our registers. And we just decided to make it permanent and put a girl in the band who doesn't play bass, who plays guitar, but it's kind of fun. Leland and I get to do a lot of guitar harmonies and, and uh, get to trade off with that. Where are you right now with the woods? Uh, I know you've, you've, you sort of dual purposing. You've got your solo career. You've got the woods. Uh, when is the next woods project due out? Very good question. Uh, we just released actually 
another single called Road Trippin' a week after my All to Yourself single release. And um, we're in the studio today, actually, but I'm not needed at the moment. So I figured I'd come chat with you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to get you back there as soon as possible, but I, I appreciate them. No, we're uh, good. I, I appreciate being able to bore you for uh, for a little bit to talk Abbey Road. Uh, so we get to cut three and uh, you never give me your money. The thing that strikes me about this one, and I, I'm curious to hear what you think, but it's that very sad A minor chord that it starts off with. It just it makes me feel sad when I hear that. it gets so happy it's such a cool song which Paul does this a lot he does it in his solo career with, with the wings you know band on the run like very almost not musical theater-ish but kind of that verse and and then you leave to the chorus and then maybe even go somewhere else later on it's it's interesting I wouldn't think to do it, you know, especially in Nashville or in country music where that's probably not going to fly. Again, I think we should all try it a little more often. Yeah. It's it's uh, it, it kind of starts off the first part of the side two medley. Uh, to me, it splits up as you never give me your money, Sun King, Mean Mr. Mustard, Polythene Pam, she came in through the bathroom window. Then you get Golden Slumbers carry that weight in the end. That's how I always uh, sort of see them coming together. Um, McCartney says about this song, uh, the problem was that by this stage, everything was up for negotiation and miscommunication was the order of the day. We weren't really writing together anymore. Each person was beginning in little bits of this, little bits of that, and putting it together. We all knew that that phase of our lives of being the Beatles was coming to an end. Uh, Maybe that's why it makes me feel sad. Uh, song made up of a, a number of uh, disparate parts joined together in the manner of uh, you think of John Lennon's happiness as a warm gun and uh, in McCartney's notebook uh, there were three separate sort of titles you never give me your money out of college and one sweet dream he he's just I don't know if you do that or not but he's a master of taking little bits of songs that he's written and knitting them together into a whole song. Is that a common technique for songwriters? I don't do it very often, no. I guess not. But how cool, right? Because you can always... You know, if you if you look at all of your songs as a as a big piece of work, you know, not individual, but as a whole, it totally makes sense that he would do that because... We're all writing another little piece of our story and another little piece of our story. So it would make sense that they would be able to connect. Now I got to go listen back to some of my tunes and see if 
if that's a thing. Uh, it, yeah, it never. I'm not a songwriter, but when I when I heard him say that, now whenever I listen to it, there are there's the you know you never give me your money part that starts, and then all of a sudden it changes to you know out of college money spent, different feel to the song, and then it finishes up with that you know one sweet dream, get in the back, you know that that bit. It's uh, I, so I can see when he points it out, I can see what he did, but uh, beyond me, how he does it. Well, that, that's why he's Paul McCartney, that's, I guess. That's a very good uh, point by you. Uh, <laughs> so that segues right into Sun King. Another Sun song for the record. What do you think of it? I'm going to throw this one at you. Well, it, uh, I guess what jumps out on, at me is uh, it, it's... I don't know if you know the Fleetwood Mac song. It's an instrumental song uh, called Albatross. Uh, And Mm -hmm. if you give that a listen, and it was out around the time that they were recording this, to me, the start of the song sounds very much like Fleetwood Mac doing Albatross. Interesting. I like that. Yeah, that that's good. That's uh, that's really good. Um, the uh, the the song allegedly came to Lennon in a dream. Uh, opens with the sound of bells and bubbles and chimes, and uh, and it's part of the crossfade, uh, joining the song to the end of "You Never Give Me Your Money," uh, and then yeah, it comes in with that sort of guitar passage. Um, what does Lennon say when we came to sing it? To make them different, we started joking uh, because it, uh, it, you know, saying "cuando uh, para mucho." We just made that up. Uh, Paul knew a few Spanish words from school, so we just strung any Spanish words that sounded vaguely like something. Uh, and of course, we got uh, "chicaferti." That's a Liverpool expression. It doesn't mean anything. It's just like ha ha ha. Uh, one we missed. We could have had paranoia, but we forgot all about it. We used to call ourselves lost paranoias, but uh, basically just according to Lennon, nonsense lyrics. Funny. So they they don't really mean anything. It's so funny. I was actually thinking that it almost sounded like Italian the way that they said it. Again. I learned French in school, so my Spanish is really bad. Um, but anytime anyone sings in another language, though, meaning it's not English for English listeners, I think it sounds important. It must be important if you're, <laughs> if you're going through the trouble. Uh, McCartney said uh, in an interview, uh, there was a thing in Liverpool that us kids used to do, which was instead of saying F off, we would say Chickaferty. Uh, it actually exists in the lyrics of the Beatles song, Sun King. So that's his memory. Uh, in that song, we just kind of made up things and we were all in on the joke. We were thinking that nobody would know what it meant and most people would think, oh, it must be Spanish or something. But we got a little seditious word in there. So that uh, he said that in uh, an interview he did in, in 2012. 20, and then we get a few beats of the drum. Man, 
Mr. Mustard. This is such an interesting thing how they weave all these next songs together as if they're one, but they're all, I mean, just reading the titles, they don't seem to make sense together at all. I don't know. What do you think? Well, it was, it was famously little bits of songs and they just finished fairly recently, Let It Be. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, this is just my own theorizing, but maybe the tank was a little dry in terms of what they had. So they brought in bits of songs. And as I was mentioning earlier, it stitched it together to make sort of a sweet of songs on the second side because they're you're right i mean they're all little little bits you know mean mr mustard is very short and then it goes into polythene pam and then it goes into she came in through the bathroom window but they all just uh to me i just i love the transition for this song out of they finish up um sun king and then all of a sudden it's boom 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 and then you're into mean mr mustard everything's so intentional right like I think that's what makes it work is that they're intentional about every transition and the melody choices that they do. And so it feels so seamless. Again, that whole concept of the Beatles, it's so easy to listen to, but then to sit down and play it, it's not quite as, you know, three chords as as you would think it would be. Uh, in uh, Lennon says, in Mean Mr. Mustard, I said his sister Pam. Originally, it was his sister Shirley in the lyric. I changed it to Pam to make it sound like it had something to do with Polythene Pam. Uh, they're only finished bits of crap that I wrote in India, is John Lennon's recollection. All right. So they really did just throw it together then. <laughs> uh, and here's a bit of trivia for you. If, uh, you know, you, you need to know this, Raquel, trust me. Uh, the uh, Mean Mr. Mustard was based on a miserly man, John Alexander Mustard, about whom Leonard had read a story in the Daily Mirror on the 7th of June, 1967. Mustard, a 65-year-old Scotsman, had been taken to divorce court by his wife due to his meanness. Here is a little bit from the story I managed to dig up. Mr. Mustard, a civil servant, was also so mean with lighting and heating that he went far beyond what any wife could be expected to bear, said Mr. Justice Rees. To save electricity, he would turn off the light while they were listening to the radio because it was not necessary to see in order to listen, he said. And he would also shave and go to bed in the dark. That's a very interesting man. <laughs> Definitely worth writing a song about. I get wh- you know? I get why they separated. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little odd, a little strange. Uh, so during the development of Abbey Road's long medley, Her Majesty was originally included between Mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam, but then Paul McCartney took it out, decided that sequence didn't work, uh, and then Her Majesty is just sort of tacked on at the end. So we go from Mean Mustard into... What stands out to me on this is John Lennon on the big 12-string acoustic. What about you? I don't know. I think just it's cool that the different vocals coming in and out of the songs too, right? Like that's also what's interesting to me is it's, you know, whoever wrote that piece sang it, which is just kind of neat and feels almost theatrical to me like you would see on a Broadway play. 
very, very theatrical. Uh, a good description. Uh, Lennon says, uh, That was me, talking about Paula Thine Pam, the song, remembering a little event with a woman in Jersey and a man who was England's answer to Allen Ginsberg, who was the English beat poet. Um, I met him when we were on tour and he took me back to his apartment and I had a girl and he had one and he wanted me to meet her. He said she dressed up in polythene, which she did. She didn't wear jackboots and kilts, as it says in the song. I just sort of elaborated that part. Uh, in a polythene bag, just looking for something to write about. Well, that is songs, though. A little bit of facts and a little bit of fiction makes a good song, in my opinion. So, good on Lennon. And then Polythene Pam and right into She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, uh, a classic sort of Paul McCartney story song. She came in through the bathroom window the lyrics in this one i think i think it's a it's a good little story and it's a lot of cool visuals as well and you know just a classic paul moment i think with his lyrics he definitely has a style and like you said his storytelling uh he says of the song uh that goes back to the fact that a woman actually did sneak into my house through a bathroom window uh, that was a little bit ajar a fan apparently one of a group called the apple scruffs she found a ladder lying outside my house in london as far as i recall she stole a picture of my cotton salesman dad or robbed me of it but i got the song in return so i guess it's all good again though just classic beatles i'm not sure that i would have thought to write a song about it but you know they managed to do it so well uh and mccartney like you he talks about his love of the images in the song you know the dancer who worked at 15 clubs a day the guy who quits the police department the woman who could steal but she could not rob those are real people you know i think Anytime a song talks about real characters that you could actually picture in your mind or maybe even know someone that fits a description, it's just going to make the song come to life that much more. Uh, Raquel, do you ever do that kind of thing where you, again, getting back to songwriting, but where you sit down and... Uh, you know, McCartney famously talks about doing this is he will just make up characters in his head uh, and they'll have a little, you know, two or three act play and he'll write about it. You think of She's Leaving Home uh, where the, you know, Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. It's almost like a Harold Pinter play. Uh, Eleanor Rigby, again, is, you know, has a very, it's almost like a play that takes place and this song as well. Do you do that kind of thing? Yeah, I do sometimes. I think a song that comes to mind is I'm a Jean. So it wasn't my title. Someone came in with Imagine I'm I'm a Jean and they had seen it somewhere. Great title. Who the heck is I'm a Jean? And so that was sort of a moment of describing and inventing this character. I'm a Jean, what a funny name. I guess she's got her dad to blame But damn, her mama made her beautiful And even with the name that's strange The way she's got everything Somehow she made being I'm a Jean cool She's got the right clothes, the right hair 
got the right boy, yeah boy, she's got you You know, that was an interesting song to write because I didn't have an idea walking in that day about Imogene and her story, but it was such a great lyric and half of it was trying to figure out how do I sing the word Imogene? That's not, you know, your easiest, uh, imagine I'm Imogene, but it just kind of came together. And as we started thinking about this character who is imagining themselves as Imogene. If I could just be Imogene, then I could have all the things that she has. Okay, well, what are all the things that she has that you want and what do they all lead to? It's like, okay, well, I want her hair and, and you know, how cool she is and her reputation because she has the guy that I'm in love with. And so it was just a really fun, colorful song to create uh, with starting with just a lyric and then getting to be super creative and basically writing a fictional story that oddly enough, I think connects with people. Uh, next track on side two, uh, and this is, uh, we're sort of in the stretch run here, starting the last section of the album, and it starts off with just a beautiful song called uh, Golden Slumbers. Once there was a way to get back homeward. Once there was a way. Get back home Sleep pretty darling Do not cry And I will sing a lullaby It's a story about, you know, going home. It's a story about, I guess, just like really it feels like a, it's like a lullaby, just like the lyric, you know, and it, it makes you feel, I think, home and it makes you feel safe and it makes you feel um, just light. And I don't know, what does it make you feel? Well, the, the song's lyrics, uh, it, and you're, you're pretty close in terms of, of your lullaby uh, inference. Uh, they were taken from a ballad which was written by an Elizabethan poet and a dramatist named Thomas Decker, uh, who died in 1632. Paul McCartney saw the sheet music sitting on a piano at his father's home, and he sat down and he says this, I was playing the piano in Liverpool in my dad's house, and my stepsister Ruth's piano book was on the stand. I was flicking through it, and I came to Golden Slumbers. I can't read music, and I couldn't remember the old tune, so I just started playing my own tune to it and I liked the words so I kept them and I fitted it with another bit of a song I had carry that weight and that's how it came together so funny how just every song has a story and a way that it came to be you know 
and some songs are more obvious than others what the story behind them are. Uh, McCartney says in his book, The Lyrics, it's very possible that I'd been feeling down in London. I was back in the solace of family and Liverpool. And what with the Beatles troubles down south, I was likely thinking, wouldn't it be nice to get home and have that comfortable feeling again? So there may have been some of that in the background. I wouldn't rule it out. Totally. I think a good home song is for a lot of people. I mean, I don't live anywhere near where I grew up. And I think, yeah, I think we all miss home a little bit when we when we leave, even if it's just for school or, you know, a long trip. Well, before we get to the last couple of tracks, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, you've I've read where you've talked about your influences being you're a big fan of Celine Dion. You're a big admirer of Brian Adams. You're a BC girl. Uh, what took you to down the route of country and living in Nashville because they don't seem to be compatible with Celine Dion and, and Brian Adams. How did it all happen? Oh, man. I think you asked me that question and it makes me realize how strange I am. But <laughs> I, I just, I love songs and I love singers. I mean, I'm a singer first, I think before a writer and a guitar player. I just love to sing from since I can remember. And, you know, Celine is in my opinion, one of the best singers ever. And again, so sad to hear about her illness. It just breaks my heart. But I also realized as I got older and my voice developed and my style that I was never going to sing like Celine Dion. So that's one reason. Sometimes we find, uh, you know, what we're good at, what we're not so good at, where our, our what our ceiling is, and we have to sort of figure out, okay, what how, how can i be a musician and what does that look like and so playing the guitar and writing songs was a big was big for me and nashville has just been known to be the place to write songs for a long time and so i had family that lived in nashville and invited me to come down and just try coding and hanging out and i just fell in love with it i'd been to la and some stuff in Canada and writing, but I loved the authenticity of just sitting in a room with your guitar and, you know, another person or maybe a couple people and just writing something that's real and from the heart and, and story songs. I think Nashville is all about story songs. And so again, I really, I think that's the moment of, of the authentic authentic part of myself that I didn't necessarily get from Celine or Brian. And, and some of their songs are maybe not story songs, but they're still from the heart and they're very real. Raquel, how do you think the scene, the music scene, I, I used to get to Nashville uh, when I was a sports broadcaster. I would come there to do uh, hockey games uh, and you know, great town, great vibe. And you could, you can just, you know, the music is in the air. Uh, it's all around you. Uh, how does that differ, the music scene in Nashville? And, and you know, and maybe you can't get a, give a definitive answer, but there's a music scene in L.A. I'm sure. And there's a music scene in New York City as well. Uh, but yet Nashville is one that I hear artists talking about. How do they how do they differ? Good question. I think for me personally, Nashville was the first time that I didn't feel like such a misfit in my life and found people that were 
in love with the same things that I was in love with, meaning musically and and even just life-wise. I think Nashville's a very friendly town in the sense musically I think we're all lots of co-writing lots of playing on each other's records a lot of just the involvement I guess it's like small town feel which is like why they get the you know little big town name is it's like a little community and you're here if you love music and it's really easy to find each other. I think in LA or New York or Toronto, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, a lot more noise and a lot, it's harder to find people. Whereas in Nashville, we literally all hang out at the same places and go to the same places and we all write near each other. You know, it's changing now with, with Nashville growing and music row not being quite what it was. But I think for a long time, you would all end up at the same bar, you know? So there's something really magical about that, that we're, it's such a community feeling. We're always together. That's cool. You ma- It makes me, I think you referenced it earlier, but it makes me think of, you know, of, of what the scene was in London around the time, you know, in the 60s when the Be- the Beatles were at their zenith and it was, you would go to the clubs and, you know, Paul McCartney would say, oh, there's Mick Jagger sitting over there with Keith Richards having a beer at the Bag of Nails Club. And, oh, we ran into Jimi Hendrix at this other place. And, oh, we ran into uh, Mama Cass. And she was like, just, I, I can't, it must have been so cool uh, like it is in Nashville where you're just out and, oh, hey, there's a big star. There's a guy I'd like to write with. There's a woman I'd like to sing with. And it would be it would be so cool. It would be so cool. Um, so we segue into the next track, uh, "Carry That Weight," and uh, it pretty obviously refers to the the troubles that the Beatles were having at the time. Again, it's, to me, it comes across as a, a sad song. But what about you? Yes, yes, and no. I, I know what you're saying. It doesn't it doesn't feel super sad, but I think that's you know, the the cleverness of the song. It invites you in by not being super sad, but then has a really weighted, hence the title, uh, sentiment. Um, which I always enjoy in a song where the music isn't exactly, you know, it's sad, so it has to be a minor chord. You know, it can be a little bit interesting, that sense. And then you get the, uh, it's neat the way it stitches together. You get the arpeggiated guitar motif from the end of You Never Give Me Your Money, and it reappears towards the end of, of Carry That Weight, and it bridges into the next track we're going to talk about, the end, uh, which to me is just a remarkable song on on so many levels. Just to think, like, how did they know? 
how did they know it was like the end, the end, you know, it's like, I guess it was on purpose, but it's just, it's just such a, not many people get that chance, you know, to really make a decision to write a song called the end. Usually it's not really your choice or, I don't know. They have a lot of insight, don't they? Mm -hmm. It was, it's, it's, uh, again, it's, if you pitch this story to, uh, the Beatles story to, a a Hollywood movie writer, they say, ah, really? Then the, their last album, the last track is the end. Nah, kids, that's too corny. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> I, don't, does that, I don't know. I think the Beatles got away with corny. I mean, because they always did it with, with their full heart and their full, like, no, this is us. This is, this is the song. This is what we're saying. You know, they always stood behind what they were writing and what they were recording, no matter what anybody thought, which I think is what made them so popular, even if for a moment here or there, it didn't make them popular. And cool thing in the song uh, that uh, only time it ever happened on a Beatles record, you had all three of the Beatles uh, in the studio live trading guitar licks. They each take a two-bar solo and they do this three times. And when you're listening to it, the order is McCartney. Harrison. Lennon. So that's how it goes. The engineer says this. The order was Paul first, then George, then John. They went back and forth. They ran down their ideas a few times, and before you knew it, they were ready to go. Their amps were lined up together, and we recorded their parts on one track. You could really see the joy in their faces as they played. It was like they were teenagers again. One take was all we needed. The musical telepathy between them was mind-boggling. That's really cool, especially because as we talked about this record, there were songs where people, you know, where members were not even in town, like they were traveling and they didn't, you know, play an instrument or sing on a certain track. So I do think it's also interesting because, you know, the way that they all started and those early records is just them playing. And it's, and if you, if you listen, uh, you can hear the three very distinct styles. McCartney is probably the most melodic player. Uh, Harrison, maybe more of a feel player, and then Lennon is more grungy. Uh, and you can you, you can mm -hmm. really hear it. T I can, anyways. When you when you when you listen to them all trading, it's it's such a cool thing the way they they trade licks at the end. And then of course uh, the final couplet, which was written by McCartney. Uh, and it was inspired by his love of Shakespearean couplets from his school days. Uh, the one he was inspired by goes, I go and it is done, the bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. That's from Macbeth. Uh, quoting McCartney, he says, that was Shakespeare's way of saying, that's it, folks. And the end was our way of saying the same. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. 
touches on that beautiful A minor from You Never Give Me Your Money and concludes on a sad C major. What a song. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you What a song. Yeah. I love that song. I think uh, <laughs> I've got a belly full of wine. I'm just, I'm, it's just, uh, that lyric just stands out to me as kind of funny. Like Paul has a little bit of humor in his lyrics a lot of the time, and yet it could still be in one of his more meaning, like not meaningful songs, but this song is, it's deep and it's, you know, it's not Maxwell Hammer. <laughs> and it's funny that with that little snippet you're talking about, Her Majesty at the end, um, it, it, there's a, it's a great story. Of, and this is uh, the engineer, John Kurlander, recalling it. He says, we did all the remixes and crossfades to overlap the songs. Paul was there and we heard it together for the first time. And he said, I don't like Her Majesty, throw it away. So I cut it out, but I accidentally left in the last note. And he said, it's only a rough mix. It does doesn't matter. I said to Paul, what should I do with it? And he said, throw it away. Well, I'd been told never to throw anything away. So after he left, I picked it up off the floor and put about 20 seconds of red leader tape before it and stuck it onto the end of the edit tape. And that is how you hear it on the album. That's amazing. Just uh, How cool. Just a happenstance. Just a happenstance. Uh, talk a little bit about the cover. Um, it was uh, unique amongst the Beatles albums to feature neither the group's name nor the title on its front cover. The four members pictured walking across uh, the, uh, the road out in front. Uh, they're walking away from EMI Studios, if that uh, symbolizes anything. If you've not, have you been there, Raquel? Have you been to... Abbey Road or that area? You know, I've I've been to England. I, I didn't make it to um to Abbey Road, but I would love to I'd love to see it. Have to. Although I've heard from people, it's not as easy as you think to take that picture. Uh, it, it is not. A lot of cars. It, it is. I, I lived there for uh, not at Abbey Road. I lived in London for nine years, and that is a that is a busy uh, section of road. So it's it's not that easy. Uh, if you've not been there, by the way, when you're looking at the cover of the album, the entrance to the studio is on the left hand side of the picture. It's the white sort of stuccoed wall. The building is set back from the wall and the entrance by about 20 or 30 meters. Um, the, uh, the photograph was taken by Ian McMillan on August the 8th, 1969. Uh, they took six photographs. He, using, he was using his Hasselblad camera while a policeman stopped traffic from passing. He used a 50 millimeter wide angle lens and the picture on the cover was picked by McCartney. It was the fifth of the six photos that were taken. Uh, and then there's a funny story I wanted to tell you. I was going to say, nowadays we take like 2,000 photos in a photo shoot. So just to have six to choose from. Just six. That's pretty good. And on a film that you had to develop. So you hoped you got it. Um, there's a guy, if you look at the cover, there's a black police van on the right side of the frame. And there's a guy standing there next to it. And he's just watching. Turns out the guy's name is, was Paul Cole, who was an American tourist. And he just happened to be walking by. And he didn't see him 
himself on the cover until years later. Uh, he, he said uh, he, he was he looked at it and he said there's there's no question that that's me. I saw the album and recognized myself right away. I had a new sports jacket on and I just bought new shell rimmed glasses. I said to my kids, get a magnifying glass out and you will see me. So he made the cover of Abbey Road and didn't know it until years later. Uh, your cover art. Um, tell me about it. Your, your 2018 album, sort of half of you on each side of the frame, personal truth and handwriting in the middle. How did that cover come to be? You know, I think just just trying to be artsy and there was something kind of interesting about cutting yourself in half because, I mean, I, I don't think I have split personalities, but I do think that you have everybody kind of has two sides of them. They have one side that they show the world on a daily basis. And then they have the other side that I think we all kind of protect and it's our very personal self, you know, and, and we don't always show that because it's not always a good time or a safe time. And I'm, I think in music, it's really special when you get a chance to show that really personal side of yourself. Then on uh, All to Yourself, your single, a lovely photo of you sort of sitting casually. Uh, And then there's Hate That I Need You. I like that one. It's you with an acoustic, but you you got a direct, strong, don't mess around with me, stare at the camera. Was that on purpose? Yeah, it might have been a little too intense for that song. I don't know, but I think... Yeah, I just wanted it to feel vulnerable. That song is really vulnerable to me. And so something about the guitar and I'm not wearing any fancy clothes, just a tank top. It's just, I wanted it to feel vulnerable like the song. Uh, Do you get much involved in your album art, Raquel? Or do you sort of have people to look after that? Are you hands-on with things like that? How does it work for you? I think I'm a little more hands-on than maybe people would hope that artists would be. Uh, I, I definitely like to pick the picture and I want it to match the song. And uh, But I definitely have people do help with you know artwork and making my name and it all fit and look good. I have no idea how to do any of that. And uh, what about a favorite Beatles cover? Do you have one? Well, honestly, the kind of embarrassing thing to say is that the biggest reason so even when I was a kid streaming was not a thing and you know I wanted to have more albums not just the number one um, Beatles album and so I kind of picked it off of its cover to buy I bought a CD version of it so I could listen to it and fell in love with it but yeah I mean, I, Abbey Road is just iconic. Other than the White Album, I think that's an interesting statement. Well, it, yeah, it, interesting in that it came right after probably their most flamboyant cover, which was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was, it, I think it was a statement. They came back and said, okay, well, the last one was over the top. This one, there's nothing on the cover. Our cover is nothing. It's our, our name embossed on, on a sea of white, which... Uh, Kind of cool. <laughs> kind of cool. It's cool. So uh, that's uh, we've been through the whole album, and I'm just uh, it's I'm wondering what your sort of final takeaways are from uh, on Abbey Road and our conversation. Uh, the the floor is yours. Oh well, one. I just want to say thank you for interviewing me. I feel like uh, that's why I said in the beginning you get the millennials. Uh, you know, take on it because I feel like I just learned so much. So thank you so much for teaching me so much about a record that I love and even just who's playing what parts. I didn't know a lot of that. Uh, 
just because I didn't know. So thank you so much for filling in those those gaps for me. What an amazing record and such a good time to just go through them and talk through them and, you know, dissect why we love it so much. Raquel, it has been my pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for the generosity of your time and all the best to you. No, oh, thank you so much. Just a reminder that you can find out what Raquel is up to by visiting her website, RaquelCole.com. There are links at the site to her video. She's got some really good ones there on YouTube. You'll find the links. Uh, There's also links to her music on Bandcamp and available on all streaming platforms. You can also find Raquel on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes for that matter, please consider making a donation Uh, to keep the podcast going and specifically to keep it commercial free. Uh, Your donation goes right towards supporting the ongoing production of this podcast and any little bit helps, whatever you can spare, if you can spare something. Uh, You can offer your support if you visit the website and click on the support the walrus button. It is that simple. Along those lines, shout outs to Joel Amaral, Michael Werner, Allison McDonald, and Tina Weymouth for their recent donations. Thanks one and all. Uh, Also, if you're a big Abbey Road fan, and most Beatles fans are, we've heard Raquel's take on sides one and two of the album in the last couple of episodes. But she's not the first to visit it in this podcast series, as you could well imagine. It's a big, big album and loved by so many people. So if you want to hear a couple of other artists' takes on the album, go and check out the archive. Uh, Singer-songwriter Jane Gowan was the first one to tackle Abbey Road, and that was way back in Series 1. It is in Episode 4. And then uh, Jim Cuddy and Colin Cripps of Blue Rodeo did a great job. They talked about Abbey Road in Series two episodes 11 and 12 all of those episodes available in the archive the next time on the walrus was paul montreal songwriter max como is going to join me to talk about one of my favorite paul mccartney albums and one that will be making its first appearance on the walrus was paul no one else has tackled it so virgin territory i'm talking about 1973's red rose speedway I am by no means saying that it's a perfect album, but I think it's the most comforting, sweetest, and most magical of his uh, early 70s albums. That is Montreal songwriter Max Como next time on The Walrus Was Paul. You can follow this podcast on the usual socials on Twitter and Instagram. I can be found at the handle Romanuk Paul on Facebook. Do a search for The Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you'll find me there. And if you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you can send me an email at the.romicast at gmail.com. Positive reviews and shares on your social channels also a big help. That is it for now. I'm Paul Romanuk, and I will talk to you later. So long. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Sit you down, father.